Hi, I'm Rachel Monteleone and welcome to Kittypedia, the podcast. I'm not an expert. However, I do speak with them with the view of providing you with expert information and advice to help you be the best parent that you can be. Together, let's give children the life they deserve and a positive future. Hello and welcome. While the ancient art of storytelling has been around since time began, as a tribal species, humans have relied on storytelling to help people connect, learn and communicate with ourselves and others. Now, the voice of narration has always had a place and purpose in our lives. And the evolution of storytelling goes way back, of course, to cave paintings and primitive art through to tribes of people sat around an open fire, listening to an elder passing down life lessons from generations before. And over time, through to the 21st century, the mediums of communication have changed, of course, to books, audiobooks, social media, feature films, subscription TV, amongst many other things. And throughout this time, of course, the core concepts of using the the sequence of events in an exciting nature have remained the same. So what are these core concepts and how can children benefit from them? Well, we're here today to find out with our special guest, Emma McTaggart, a mother, an award-winning author and publisher, and one of our partners here at Kittypedia. Now, a little bit about our guest. For the last 15 years, Emma has been teaching the craft of writing and illustrating to children and adults via her child rights program. Her publishing business, Boogie Books, is one of the largest publishers in the world on Amazon of children's books written by children for children. And for five years, these same books also flew with Jetstar as part of their in-flight entertainment system. Now, Emma is a regular guest on ABC Southern Queensland Radio, and she's also the founder of International Read to Me Day, a reimagined global event this year, encouraging readers to share the love of story via Facebook Live. Welcome, and this is our first chat. I'm very excited to have you here. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, Rachel. And as I listened to the beginning of the introduction, not the bit about me, but the history of mankind and story, you actually had me completely transfixed. That was magical. Thank you. Oh, well, but that's the whole thing with storytelling. It is mag- magical and that's the whole idea, isn't it, to take us out of where we are and transport us some, somewhere else. And that is the magic of it. And it's, storytelling is not just in books. It is. It's in, in everything. It's, 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 it transports us through films and through all of the digital platforms that we have these days also. And it, it is so important not just for, I guess, um, our emotional well-being to take us somewhere, but, of course, for, from the perspective of what it teaches and can teach us and of course most importantly teach children what are your thoughts absolutely and I love the adage Rachel that that if a man lives only one life but if you read you can live thousands of lives so I think the idea of actually learning from those who have um have those who have been here before us that there is no need to actually recreate the wheel every time and to actually be transfixed and transported on any journey is really incredible. Yes, I totally agree. And, you know, traditional storytelling, of course, is how um, originally had tales and myths 
and fairy tales are all created. Um, but of course, how many life lessons are learned. So I just wanted to ask initially, how do you personally think uh, tales and storytelling can teach children just basic life lessons? What are your thoughts? Well, I think I think that if we go back to the oral tradition of delivering stories, that that the mores and the rules of any society which binds us together as a community were actually shared, that the picture book or certainly literature has become another way of actually sharing those communal expectations that we have. Because as hum as as animals. I guess that we can look um, at to the animal kingdom and we know that survival of the species uh, is really important. But as a human, we've developed a consciousness that actually makes us think about ourselves as much as the community. So we need a set of rules. We need that we need an understanding, a social understanding of what our expectations are so that we can move as one shoal of fish, if you like. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm. Um, and talking about, um, I guess, expanding our minds and the way that we see the world, imagination is a very big part of that. So how do you then think books can help children strengthen their imagination then? What are your thoughts? Well, I think that because, because storytelling and story listening, if you like, is so part of our DNA, that children instinctively respond to it. It's nearly like the un... Uh, I want to say unpoisoned, but that's not the right word, that, that really that our current system or our systems of education that are formalised and not about the individual, it's about that shoal, so it's that, um, that tension between the macro and micro. But our children respond instinctively, and especially when they're tiny, children's picture books particularly, then children's picture book writers are the rock stars of their world and their parents are the rock stars because they deliver it to them. So they are not ready to look for out for influences beyond that. Their DNA responds instinctively to stories. They are open to it. And we are genuinely hardwired in our responses to it. So our brains actually produce all kinds of chemicals, one of which, which is I think it's serotonin, is actually the empathy hormone. So when we are listening to a story, when we feel safe, which is wrapping a child physically into our bodies as we share a story at night, it's not necessarily the story per se, but it's how safe they are and then the messaging that comes from the story. And so when a child says more again, again, it's because you can see that they're actually really hooked on the feelings that they get from that situation. But it's is it about putting themselves into the shoes of that character and using their imagination to go on the adventures in that stories as if they were real, would you say? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, so they will pick up a single piece of it, and I love it when you read a book to a child because they'll pick something out in an illustration that, you know, we haven't even noticed as adults. Mm-hmm. But because they feel so safe and their minds are so open that the idea of their imagination flooding in, those children completely are transported in the pages. And I think one of the best examples is where the wild things are that children can identify with Max as he is naughty and is sent to his room and then goes off to where the wild things are. Nearly that is a story that actually demonstrates what is happening with the internal imagination of a child as they're being Mm -hmm. transported. 
So yes, it kickstarts all kinds of things. And by virtue of traveling with that imagination, they can actually feel the empathy that is required that the characters go through because they're there. They're not seeing it as a superficial level and through the pages. They are absolutely transported into that space in that time. Yes. I'm just loving your energy as you're talking about this, Emma. I can just feel your passion, how passionate you are about this. And it goes back to, I remember our very first conversation, which is just, it's just beautiful. Now, excitingly, I just wanted to acknowledge that we published your article and the title is Overcoming the Monster. Now, for someone who hasn't read the article yet, can you please tell us what it's about and, of course, what inspired you to write it? I love the idea that not only, you know, as we were saying, as I was saying with the hardwiring of the DNA, but that the plot lines have been undiminished by time. Now, there is a particular um, aficionado of studying this, there's lots of breakdowns and lots of theories about it, but I prescribed to Christopher Booker's notion that there are seven plots and overcoming the monster. Oh, sorry, I should say Christopher Booker. So he read for 30 years and read Mm -hmm. everything from Shakespeare, the classics through to dystopian novels and tried to ascertain the formula. Some people think it's oversimplistic, a little bit too much of a nod to Freud, et cetera, et cetera. Let's just ignore the that side of it. But the idea that overcoming the monster is the most prodigious um, plot line that we have, it's the oldest known record story. So on, um, on clay tablets in the Sumerian desert, I think Sumerian, Sumerian, I always get the fine details mixed up, Rachel, so, you know, bear okay. with me. But in, in, in the Middle East, they found these cuneiform, these these tablets, and that it has this, the epic battle of Gilgamesh, and it actually is akin to Dracula, to any of the James Bond movies. It is about hero, hero, his call. Hero feels compelled to actually go and deal with call. The call is impending doom to a village. Then he sets off to deal with the monster, deals with it successfully, he thinks, to return for the monster to be more emboldened and bigger, and it goes on and on and on. There's a series of three attempts, and then to a miraculous escape, he returns home as the hero. And I think what is so powerfully fundamental about that is that we give children the option to be the hero. So um, I watched this amazing footage of a car running into a building and there were two two people walking past. One person ran away and the other person ran into the building to see. Now, we know from a mental health perspective that whenever you action something, that is you actually are less likely to have PTSD because you're actually moving forward. And I'm very conscious that I'm a children's picture book author, not a trained psychologist. So... Bear with me on the generalizations of the theories. But the hero who actually moves forward in a story is actually a decision maker. And we know as adults, whenever we make a decision, even if it's a flawed decision, we are so comfortable with the outcomes as opposed to it happening to us. Right. So there's lesson one in stories. Always, you know, promote the idea of being the hero rather than the bystander. Then when it comes to the idea of overcoming something that is so enormous that it is about how how long it takes to eat an elephant, you know, it's one mouthful at a time. It is step by step. 
And so there is no story without the steps in between. So we demonstrate that, look, you try, doesn't might not work. You try again. Gosh, it still doesn't work. Doesn't mean you give up. You try again. And just when you're about to give up, because the human condition at some point we all want to go home and put our heads underneath the doona, is just to give it one more shot. You don't know what it is, but you do have the power within to make change happen. Mm. Now, what parent does not want their child to actually be fully comfortable with that as a process for then approaching all of life? Yes, totally mm. agree. Could I just ask you this one question? Is overcoming yes. the monster the same as the hero's journey? Because a, a lot of parents would have heard, I guess, that phrase as, um, I guess, a, a very traditional um, plot, I would say, um, to storytelling. But is it the same thing? Is and it's not. So the hero's journey is the overcoming the monster, but it also is um, completely relevant to the other plot lines. So, uh, so it is the beginning. The hero's journey is the person makes the choice to commit to the action, and that's the hero's journey. We don't want them to be the bystander. We never want to be a bystander. Who wants life to go past us? Mm -hmm. We want to go out. The only two things that pass us are opportunity and time. So that is why we do prescribe the hero's journey, journey. which means just get into it. Mm. Okay, so so the, the seven plots using storytelling, tell me if this is correct, is overcoming yep. the monster, voyage yep. and return, the quest, yep. rags to riches, rebirth, yep tragedy and comedy so pretty much yes. every storytelling every movie um pretty much can fall into one of those sort of seven plots would you say uh yes and and i i've spent a lot of time looking at children's picture books and some some may may sit and they might be called a slice of life so they actually don't fit into a plot line they're, they're just not as complicated you know there's not the hero hero answers the call and then the sequence of events mm -hmm. the nuance the differences between each of those are really really subtle yet really important to understand it which is why I'm loving writing the, about the rest of the plots for mm -hmm. you Rachel is because the differences mean that we can actually find more and more appropriate forms of literature to actually help our children in different stages so overcoming the monster, if we go back to that, that we're actually looking at fear. So that is predominantly an issue for small children, you know, fear of the dark, fear of different foods, fear of going to school. It can be a fear of something external or it could be a fear of something internal. So it could be, you know, I'm not good enough. It could be an issue of their self-esteem. It could be about a, well, a bully's external. But it's that conundrum of can I do it? Okay. The answer is yes, you can, and that's what that does. Whereas Voyage and Return is about leaving, hearing the call, the hero's call, but leaving home and coming back again. And, and then the plot lines, become, you know, as I said, subtle differences um, that are incredibly interesting to know. And earlier on you touched on the word resilience. So how can books help children build resilience, do you think? I think predominantly by if you think that children learn by osmosis and just by observation and learn, you know, that um, NAPCAN had an incredible campaign years ago called Children See, Children Do. Mm -hmm. So 
Okay. All right. So say I'm a really tired mum. Oh, I am talking about myself. I was a really tired mother with, you know, three children under three with a limited capacity to keep it together, to be the role model that I wanted my children to see. Okay. So we have flaws in us as human beings. When we pick up a book, it's been curated and polished and scrubbed that we actually still have an opportunity in our children's day to actually give them good role models. So the hero successfully navigating a story is actually a good role model. And so the children, as we said, with their imaginations will transport themselves into the hero's shoes and they will experience that that energy that comes from understanding that you can do this, that you Mm. can overcome it. Sometimes they may need to revisit the story again and again and again and again, and there'll be a subtle reason they can't articulate whether it's they haven't quite fully grasped it. But, you know, sometimes when you're reading to a child and they ask again and again and again and again and again and then all of a sudden they're done, my personal feeling is that something has clicked inside their little heads and they they understand what the message is, as, you know, again, linking to their DNA and their responses to the story, et cetera. Oh, I love Again, that. unsubstantiated, not proven. And if anyone is out there who's a psychologist who wants to hang out with me and test these theories, that would be an amazing Kidopedia coup. So there we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, and following on from that, um, from resilience, I mean, do you think that listening to stories in this manner can help children develop empathy? And if so, how? Is it once again putting themselves in the shoes of the character and walking through those steps and living that as if it was real, as I mentioned earlier? Yes, Yes. and so, so if storytelling kicks off, cortisol as we feel the story arc rise up so you get that anxiety in your tummy it's so resilience if 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 resilience by definition is get up when you've been pushed over right so if you're feeling the story arc and you're feeling that impending anxiety um and and anxiety has become a dirty word but it used to it, it and it still is a really useful tool because it propels you forward in the hero's journey So you have the cortisol kicking off and then you have that success, which is that flush of serotonin. So we actually do, it's the the love. You actually do have this flood of understanding and genuine connection with the heroes, with the outcomes of the hero, so that you are actually walking in the shoes. It's not it feels like or it sounds like or whatever, you actually are. And so... (laughs) Yeah, you are. So does it increase empathy? I know as adults we read books and we want to, you know, smack the, the no, you're not allowed to smack, but you're like, we, we, we want to turn our backs on the hero because we, it doesn't identify. But it's, they're the books that you possibly should always finish, the ones yes. that you don't like, because it is curated as a, as a, as a, as a story so that you understand their entire journey so that you can walk with them. So following on from that again um, and from empathy on the flip side, I mean, how do you think books can help children develop how to deal with their fears and insecurities equally? I think the fact that when when, when you see that someone can do it, and then you say to yourself, and we know this as adults, so, uh, you know, we, we do look at children as a different species and there, there are all kinds of reasons we do that. But I do think that responding to stories is, is a universal age-long thing. 
that when we see that someone else has done it, first of all, it breaks down all the myths, it demystifies the process. So that in itself increases our sense of safety. So if, and, and when I describe that, it's, and I, um, it, that's the self-efficacy, you know, it is our ability to, to deal with things. So when, you, when you've got a book in front of you, you see that someone has actually done it, it's, it's about getting to the point where you say, I'm going to have a crack at that. Yeah. And yeah. that is where it comes from. It, it may need, it, they may not identify with the little walrus who's trying to evade the, the, the ice breaking down. That may, not, that may not tick off an interest point. But it, it's a matter of finding the next story or the next character or the next hero that the children identify with. Yes. And that's why it's important to keep going with books. Not And I had one child out, my eldest, used to be like a helium balloon. You know, if I could hang on to her long enough to get her to see a book, you know, it's where she was happier drawing and she didn't read her first book until she was in her teens, that it, it's, it's worth persisting. But she would see me reading every night. The house is covered in books it, and, and yet she was really good at sitting down and listening to her grandfather. So she would hear the stories orally. So the role models, you know, may, may not be the hero in that particular picture book that you could bought from the library that day, but they are out there. So you keep persisting until they find that person that they identify with. With, yes. <clears throat> and also bringing up about how um, books can under help us understand our children a little bit better. I mean, how do you think parents can use storybooks to help open conversations with their children to learn about how the children uh, view and experience the world around them? I'd love to know. This is, well, this is a superpower that our wonderful teachers um, engage in every day. And it's something um, that not many parents, including me when, when the girls were little, including me, that I didn't do because I saw the end of a book as lights are going to be out in any minute and the house is going to be quiet and all I want to do is just sit with my own thoughts just for long enough to smile at my husband. So that's that was that was the game changer in our household. But for teachers, when they read the story, so when they've got a new classroom, they read the story and, you know, the three little ones will pipe up and say, we live on a farm, we do this or whatever. So you find that, that they find those children find commonalities. Teachers find the commonalities. They also find the gaps in their experiences. So that gives them some direction as well. So they, teachers actually use, when they close the book, they actually use it as a departure point or, you know, like a set off. They're they're just getting on the boat to go on the cruise with those children, as opposed to the parents who are docking and then, you know, putting a bag over their head and saving up all their money for the next holiday. So, Using them to actually start a conversation, it means you've got the children to a point where they feel safe. You've actually shown that as an adult, you're not completely wigging out when you're actually with the topic. I mean, the worst thing you could do is reading a book is go, oh, my God, and pass judgment on that character and then the child will never open up about it. But if they see you settling into that and being comfortable with the concepts in the book, then they will feel comfortable about engaging in something. So hopefully it creates an opportunity for conversation. Mm, I love that. Thank you for answering that in that way. It's um yeah. There's, there's so many things that I learned in these interviews. It's incredible. It's just I, I do this 
from my perspective, always to help the audience, always to help families, but I love learning along the way as well. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you, being consumed by, by something, Rachel, you asking questions with a different voice and a different, a, a different, a different audience in mind and all of that kind of thing is creating, this is coming out of my head, mm, you know, I love delivering it. that directly to you too. Which is a really good example of of, of of a different audience provokes a different response Always. as well. Uh, yeah. yeah. And another thing that I've learned today as well, in your article, you in- introduce us to self-efficacy, which for many of us uh, may be the first time that we've heard of it. It definitely was for me. Now, I, I researched into what it is and tell me if this is correct or not. I hope I've done my, my research okay. It refers to our beliefs about our ability to effectively perform tasks needed to achieve a valued goal. Um, yeah. So I just love to know from your perspective, how can you test if a child has high self-efficacy? This is this is gold. I feel like you know one of those you know those, one of those moments where you pick up a book, you're not quite sure about you know what you're going to get out of it. But this is um, Dr. Anthony Gunn has got this amazing book that I, I turned into my Bible when I, when the kids were little, um, Happy Confident Children, and he talked about self-efficacy. And the self-efficacy, teachers see it all the time. You see it amongst your own children as well that, you know, you'll say, oh, who wants to? And before you finish the sentence, one of them will be shooting towards the car. That is the child with high self-efficacy. They, they already know that they can answer the hero's journey. They, can, they already are, you know, on their way. For a teacher, it'll be the little hands that pop up in a classroom saying, I will, and they say, well, now put out the rubbish. And they go, they, you know, they were thinking they were going to be prefects. It, it's, it is that innate sense that I can do it. That's Yeah, so, yes, and, and so self-efficacy describes a common, I think of it more as a, as a, as a mixed, you know, like a cake made out of self-esteem, self-belief, um, um, uh, self-determination, all of the other selves that we talk about. So self-esteem, I think of it as I like myself. I, you know, I like myself. I don't like myself. That's, 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 that's your self-reflection, if you like. Self-determination, I can do the jobs. I don't need someone to tell me to do the jobs. To me, it's the combination of all of those, which is if you if you have a high level of self-efficacy, you know that you have the wherewithal to answer the hero's journey. And so to me, they're actually really highly correlated. So if you've got a kid who's got a low self-esteem, a low self-efficacy, they're not, they're going to be really risk averse they're not going to try anything which is condemn it can um, manifest itself as a lack of confidence it can be you know someone who just doesn't want to try anything and so if you actually prescribe to the idea that mood follows action you can actually start to introduce things that will promote self-efficacy so I think Anthony Gunn describes a really great example of this. And put up your hand and stop me. It's just that it's my favourite topic. So thank you for Fine. the airtime. Um, uh, that when you go out to dinner, that uh, my husband and I order the same thing every single time because we know that it ticks all of our boxes. Now that is not high. That's not high self-efficacy. It's you know like it's 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 you're not open. It's a closed mindset. That's the best way of describing it. 
if you have a growth mindset, which is the, you know, the new way of talking about this now, it means that you will have a crack at it because there is no nothing that you can't overcome. So when you're going out to a restaurant with, you know, with your small children, always order one extra meal that no one has tried before. You lower the risk. No one's going to go hungry. Your your children are going to watch you try something and squeal in either delight or horror as you try new foods. And they're going to see that trying stuff doesn't finish you off. You're not going to be, you know, like covering a snail in salt and disappearing because that is low self-efficacy. High self-efficacy is when, oh, yeah, I'll give it a go. And, uh, you know, it might work, it might not, but I'll see what the outcome is. So then do you think then the idea of increasing self-efficacy can help children create and build their resilience then? And if so, how? Definitely. I think if you've got a a child that has got a high level of self-efficacy, that that when something comes along and, you know, we we live in a world that is littered with, with disappointment and lack of opportunity and, infections and then environment it 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 may seem as though things are not going our way okay now that's not a matter of glass half full or glass half empty but you could describe it like that because there are people in this pandemic that are thriving how is that so and it is about how we face these things now so that is the definition of resilience because it is getting back up again So if you give a child an opportunity to learn how to read, if you give them space to tell stories that they're not going to get shot down, that they're going to then be able to write little books and hand them to you, and then they staple them together because they do some drawings, you will actually watch their self-efficacy increase using this modality of communications, which is writing and illustrating children's picture books. Um, for, uh, for a child on a sporting playground, it will be, you know, learning to touch their toes and then, you know, tiptoe along a straight line and then be able to, you know, make it all the way to the finish line, which might be 20 metres, then 50 metres and 100 metres. But we do it all in steps, exactly like our hero's journey. So as we do that, we kind of defray the risk associated with it. We have a sense of a win and so we're more likely to try again. So when we get knocked down, we get up again. And that's why I think the two are so closely aligned. We can't teach resilience because resilience can only be taught by knocking that down. And I don't think any parent in the world is going to let me go into a school and push every child over physically to see who gets up or who puts out their hand or who stays on the ground crying. That's not going to work. But we can teach children how to how to make attempts at trying things, and they're great at it. It's children then see adults and we don't make decisions, like we don't try new things. So we've got to actually keep, we've got to demonstrate that open mindset and then our children will keep doing it and then they will learn the skills which then makes them resilient. So in saying that then, uh, what is your number one book to help support um, build children's um, and support their fears and build adversity? I'd love to know. Uh, so when it comes to when it comes to overcoming the monster, particularly my favourite one in that genre is the Gruffalo, and the Gruffalo is so entertaining because it's this little mouse who has extraordinary high efficacy, because as he is confronted 
by these, you know, dire creatures that absolutely love eating little mice, which is, you know, that's a little person who always gets pushed over in a playground or whatever. He just holds his ground, uses his wit because he does have high self-efficacy. So instead of being fearful, he has time to think about how he's going to navigate through that crisis. So that's, that is part of what the hero does as well. They stand and they go, hmm. A lot of stuff going down right now, but I can still think clearly as opposed to going back into the animal brain and being consumed by fear and cortisol washing over us and not getting anywhere. So that little mouse holds his ground, uses his wit and actually negates, not overcoming the monster, he evaporates the monster, which he actually already had as a mindset. It's a really clever little book, clever, great book, clever award-winning book. It's brilliant. I love this. Now, I guess with all of your plans and what you're doing in your business now, how would you maybe describe what your plans are for the future to continue sort of doing this great work that you do? I think that uh, I'm really excited about the idea of giving more and more children the opportunity to actually experience the joy of writing, to understand that they can illustrate a book if they choose to, that their wonky little drawings become their style as opposed to um, a good or a bad drawing. So what I love about what I do is that there's no measure or mark or score the only the the um the contingency for success is actually finishing it so each time we write a story even if it is one day i'm going to talk to rachel the end well, i've already written it so and then the next layer i come back i'm going to make it more detailed and i'm going to keep polishing it so it's learning about how to strap on the body armor and receive feedback mm-hmm. which will increase their self efficacy and then 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 more children who have the opportunity to do this so that's that's what it, when i wake up in the morning i try and think of ways that i can get in front of more kids to share this um modality if you like Love it. My new word for today. Well, I've definitely learned a lot today in our chat. If you were to summarise your key messages for anyone watching and listening, what would they be? I think that we have tools at our fingertips with, with, with books that are in front of us. And if you don't, tap someone on the shoulder and ask for a book. It is an extraordinary um, vehicle to actually help us become open-minded, to improve our self-efficacy, to increase our resilience, and they're there. And so it's not just about spending five minutes reading to your children. It's about the big picture and the adults that you really, really want them to become. I love that. Now, if anyone's got any questions for you and or would love to, to know more about what you do and or all of the good stuff, whereabouts can they find you? I am I'm easily found. I've just, I've, my website is emmamctaggart.com.au. Um, they can actually find, I've got an online course uh, called Live Right Share that is free to anyone who would like more. Um, at the moment, while we're all in lockdown, I can't bear the fact that people don't have access to people right now. So that course is for free. I'm always at the end of an email and I'm going to be hanging out with you on Kidopedia sharing more about the plot lines and 
just more stuff about why we do what we do from this perspective. And we can't wait, Emma. So we're so excited to, to chat to you again in the not too distant future. We'll have all of those links so everybody can access them in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today and just your 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 just your beautiful energy. It's just been fantastic. And thank you for all the lessons that you've taught us. So I can't wait to chat with you again soon. Until then, stay safe and uh, take care. All right, see you. Thank you, Rachel. All right, bye. I'm Rachel Monteleone and you've been listening to Kittypedia, the podcast. You can have full access to Kittypedia by visiting our website at kittypedia.com.au or following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. We're all here to help make the world a better place for our children and for generations to come. You can start today by helping us reach other parents by going to Apple Podcast, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Thank you for listening and be sure to give my love to the kids.